Welcome to Cal St. G Academy, the educational podcast of the Parish of Calvary St. George's. These podcasts are intended to inform and deepen your faith so that you can share your faith thoughtfully with the world around you. For more information about the parish, go to calvarystgeorges.org. And now, break out your moleskin prayer journal, and let's get started. The Year of the Bible is a series of Cal St. G Academy. Each episode will cover a new book of the Bible in a concise, in-depth, and ultimately edifying way. These lectures are recorded live each week at Calvary Church in New York City. The letter to the Hebrews may be characterized in a way it, in the way that it describes the mysterious priest king Melchizedek, who is described in chapter 7 verse 3 as without father or mother or genealogy. Much doubt surrounds the authorship of Hebrews, its audience, and its date. The early Christian theologian Origen summed up the authorship question with the comment that only God knows who wrote this epistle. And that was like uh, in the second century AD. But all of that notwithstanding, the letter to the Hebrews presents us with a portrait of the person and work of Christ that is as compelling as it is engaging, as I mentioned in the uh, intro. Here we find an eternal high priest who can empathize with us like none other. Join me then in the forum today, as you are, as we look at this book and walk through its, the development of its themes through its chapters. Again, briefly, the authorship is unknown. There have been many speculations. Uh, some thought maybe Priscilla, maybe Aquila, some uh, Titus or, and others, but... Uh, we don't. We ultimately don't know who who authored it on the human level, though we know it is inspired uh, by the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, the audience to the Hebrews, even there, there's some doubt because the the title in the Greek is simply "Pros Hebraeon" to the Hebrews, and uh, is is not assigned till the second century, and so that we have an idea that that to the Hebrews was based on the contents of it. Uh, namely, its, its profuse, profuse use of the Old Testament and of its addressing an audience that appears to be primarily composed of Jewish Christians. And the dating of it, well, again, there is uncertainty, except that it, it was likely had to be written uh, prior to um, 90 uh, AD. Its literary form is curious. When you start reading this book... It begins almost like an essay or a a theological treatise. Then, sort of as you get into the chapters, two, three, four, five, six, seven, it starts to sound like a sermon where doctrine and application, doctrine and application uh, repeat themselves as the author goes forward. And then finally, by the time you get to chapter 13, this letter really reads well like a letter where you have a kind of uh, various points of, uh, of advice given, some 11 points, and some personal notes, and a benediction. But here again, there is no uh, uh, salutation. We don't know to whom and, or from whom, and there is no conclusion uh, that gives us a sense of authorship. So with that said, that's about really all that needs to be said about its the book uh, as a whole. 
There are a few key words that I would have us to look into, especially if you read this a book. Read it this afternoon. It takes a, really a few minutes. You can read it in, uh, in under an hour. And some of the key words are better and superior. You'll hear those words repeated variously throughout it. Uh, a better covenant, a better priesthood, a superior sacrifice. And these words are given not to... Uh, devalue the Old Testament. In fact, on the contrary, this is one uh, book of the Bible that uses the Old Testament profusely, as I mentioned before, but rather to show that the Old Testament uh, is simply a foreshadowing of what is the plan from the ages, that is to save humankind and the universe itself through the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we begin with chapter 1. Hebrew uh, of Hebrews, where Jesus is the final word of God. Oh, and another word about the structure of this, ju- just to re- remind us. It, it's, they say, I'm taking their word for it, commentators say that Hebrews is written in a very eloquent, very formal Greek. Well, even though I studied Greek, and I really couldn't tell the difference. But for us English speakers, to give you a sense of what that might be, Uh, The opening verses in the King James Version, I think, gives us a sense of that eloquence. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake unto our fathers through the prophets, hath spoken unto us through his Son. And and you get that sense of formality and and, and, uh, stateliness that it opens up with. A modern version, of course, long ago, long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways to the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son. And the opening chapter establishes, first and foremost, Jesus' divinity. Right here in verse 3, we have a clear statement. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. And that sustains all things by the, his powerful word. Jesus' divinity is established immediately for the audience to hear. And he goes on to say that he is superior to the angels, quoting several uh, of the Old Testament passages where Christ's superiority to the angelic order is established by the fact that he is the Son of God. And as Son, he is higher than the angels, even though temporarily he was made man and a little lower than the angels, as this uh, writer interprets the Old Testament, he uh, he became in his glorification above all the angels. And so Jesus' superiority to the angels is established by his sonship, by the fact that he conquered death that he is the propitiation for our sins in chapter 2, and he is able to help us since he suffered the trials and temptations that we suffer. And so in chapters 1 and 2, we have already this clear establishment of Jesus' superiority to the angels of heaven, and probably to address, it isn't that clear here, but to address a kind of Gnostic infatuation with uh, orders of being and angels and, and that sort of thing, the author wants to make it very clear that Jesus is above them all. 
by virtue of his being the son of God. It says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you, where he's quoting Psalm 2. And he says, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his servants flames of fire. But of his son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of your kingdom. Establishing once and for all Jesus' superiority. Now we transition from establishing this. The author takes us in in chapter 3. And as you look at your outline, just sort of stick stuff in if you want to, wherever it might fit. (coughs) Excuse me. Jesus is now established as one who is superior to Moses. And, and here is where we're getting a sense of the authorship, uh, or rather the audience, as being the Hebrews. For already in early Christianity, there was a, a sect of Jewish Christians, uh, we know them by the name of the Ebionites, who followed Jesus, but they, they never went all the way with Christian orthodoxy. They followed Jesus as the teacher, as the rabbi, as the exalted um, a human being, uh, never quite making it to accepting uh, Jesus' full divinity, much less the understanding of God as Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here we get an establishment, therefore, that Jesus is superior to and brought a better covenant than Moses by virtue of his divinity, whereas where Moses, we're told, was faithful in all God's house, in chapter 3, that is, Moses faithfully carried out God's plans. Jesus was not only faithful in carrying out God's plans, he created those plans and carried them out as God. Moses was a servant. Jesus is a son. And we are recipients of the fruits of these plans because of what Jesus has done. All we need to do is hold fast our, to our confidence in this hope. And here we get already the first uh, exhortation to hold fast, to, to keep faith, to place your confidence in him. And then there's also comes here a warning against apostasy. Apostasy is the turning away from the faith. It's the, it comes from the Greek word, literally meaning uh, to stand away from, apostasis, to stand away from where you once stood. And on several places in this, in this letter, the author warns us against this. In chapter 3, verse 7, it's an extensive quote from the 95th Psalm. Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the day of testing in the wilderness. When your ancestors put me to the test, though they had seen my work for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation, and I will not give them rest. Is a warning to all uh, who are considering this falling away. Jacob prayed uh, during the prayers of the people. One of the intercessions that he put in there was to pray for those who are considering or, or in danger of losing their faith, that they might hold and hold fast to that which is true. Take warning against apostasy. 
Chapter 4 continues along this vein and notes that the failure of the Israelites to enter the promised land on account of their unbelief is parallel to our failure to enter into God's rest due to unbelief. And yet the promised land was but a type of the Sabbath rest that is reserved for the people of God. And so the author tells us, let us strive to enter that rest as the word of God so convicts us. But remember, we have a great high priest who understands us, understands to the point that he was tempted in every way, we're told, except without sin, that we may then draw near to him. Therefore, chapter 4, verse 16, let us draw with confidence near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in every time of need. And so there's always a connection here between the warning and the comfort. The warning is not to fall away, not to step aside from where you stood in the faith before, but the comfort is that by God's grace, he won't let us do that. By God's grace, he will hold us steadfast. By God's grace, we will not apostatize or leave our standing in the faith. It isn't a question of working it up. It's a question of his work upon us. So now he moves into he or she, could have been written by Aquila. The author moves in chapter 5 to the function of a priest. Now we're going to get into, you might say, the heart of the argument of of the letter to the Hebrews. What is the function of a priest after all? A priest is one who acts on behalf of the people by being and offering sacrifices for sin, for the priest's own as well as for the sin of the people. The human priest served as called by God and at the same time as one in need of the priestly ministry. Ah, but not so Jesus. Jesus, as son of God, appointed as great high priest, served on behalf of sinful humanity, himself exempted, obedient only in the sense that he was made perfect through suffering. That is, Christ's priesthood was a perfect or complete priesthood, making him the source of eternal salvation to all who follow him. So that in in that sentence we have Jesus' priesthood summarizing and completing the priesthood of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant. And then now he gives a warning again, he or she, whoever wrote this, uh, a warning telling the readers uh, that they, they really need milk and not solid food. They need a refresher course on the basics of the gospel. And yet, in chapter 6, the author encourages the readers, and you and I, right, you and me, uh, to move forward from the elementary things of the faith towards the maturity that will help us uh, to stay steadfast in our commitment. And so he says, let us go on in chapter 6 toward perfection, leaving behind the basic teachings about Christ, not laying against the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God, instruction about baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection from the dead, 
and eternal judgment. And we will do this if God permits. So he wants us to move forward into a deeper understanding of these things that we might grow in our Christian uh, maturity. Now, in chapter 6, the author tackles what I would call the naughty question of apostasy. This question keeps repeating itself, and, and as many commentators have suggested, the letter to the Hebrews was written to a Hebrew Christian community on the verge of apostasy, perhaps due to persecution, perhaps due to doubts. If Could Jesus, there's only one God, how... Can Jesus be God? You, you, you feel the wrestling that they've had. This is, after all, many years before the Council of Nicaea settled the question of the full identity of the divinity of our Savior. And so this question of apostasy arises again and again throughout this book. There are those who have, and I'm quoting from here in chapter 6, once been enlightened tasted the goodness of God's word, shared in the Holy Spirit and in the future hope. And yet, we are told, they have fallen away and abandoned the faith. And, it, and he even says in verse 4, for it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened. These are frightening words, words that have been used in many a discussion. Uh, this is kind of a sidetrack here, but... I've been in many of these discussions between Calvinists and Arminians on this one. If you want to know more about that, ask me later. I won't sidetrack it. But, you know, can you lose your salvation or is your salvation secure? I happen to fall on the secure side of that fence. Uh, Why? Because I believe scripture does too. And our security is not based on us. It is based on him who will never let us go. Okay. What the author is doing here is pointing, right, to that, to that tendency within this community of Jewish Christians who are uh, thinking of maybe reverting back uh, to the old ways, going back to the temple, back to the synagogue, and abandoning the church. That, that apostasy, right, if permanent... The impossibility has to do with the permanence of that falling away. But that is something that only God can determine. But look, look what happens. There's, a, there's even here um, words of grace. In verses 9 through 12. Even though we speak in this way, beloved, we are confident of better things in your case. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust He will not overlook your work and the love that you showed us for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. And we want each one of you to know the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope to the very end. So that you may not become sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Unpacking that, what the author is doing is, is alluding to Jesus' own criteria for the authenticity of faith. The authenticity of faith is not just that we've talked the talk, but we walk the talk. Or, put it another way, by their fruits you shall know them. It is the fruitfulness 
of the hearers of this letter that is the evidence of the authenticity of their faith, for works follows faith, right? It doesn't, work does not effect it, but rather follows faith, which follows grace, that establishes their authenticity, that they might take encouragement, so that even if they feel they've taken a step across the line, they might know that there's someone holding their hand on the other side. Or as in an old hymn put it, O love that will not let me go. And so the author is giving them a warning and a comfort at the same time. Even as you feel your hands losing their grip, know that someone has already got you gripped by the wrist. So we move on then to chapter 7, where Jesus now, he moves on with the argument now. He's taking us into the nature of this priesthood, right? The nature of Christ's high priesthood. He is compared to Melchizedek, the priest king of Salem, that mysterious figure that we encounter in Genesis chapter 14, who is described in chapter 7, right? Verse uh, 13, as, as having no father, no mother, nor genealogy. We don't know who this guy is. You see, Abraham was just, uh, him and his family were just attacked by some chieftains. Um, he defeated them by, by God's power, rescued uh, his nephew Lot, and uh, comes to the, the town of Salem, which was later to be Jerusalem. Salem means peace. And he, and he comes to this mysterious figure, Melchizedek, who is the priest king of Salem. And what does Abraham do? He offers him a tithe to give to the God Most High, to El Elyon in chapter 14 of Genesis. And, and in this, Abraham is doing a number of things. Of course, he's giving gratitude and thanks to God. And he's recognizing the superiority by the very gesture of the offering of this tithe to Melchizedek, the priest king who has no origin, who just appears on the scene and disappears. And our author is telling us that this is a type of Christ, Christ who is eternal, who always was and always is and always will be. This is a type of Christ who <coughs> is also the king of righteousness, which is the translation of the name Melchizedek, if you read in chapter 7, and the king of peace which is the king of Salem. And so this Melchizedek becomes for us a type, a prefiguration of our Lord and Savior. And, and Abraham is bowing to him, offering the tithe, offering worship to God Most High in gratitude for deliverance. The letter argues, and here's the argument. It's a very Jewish argument, by the way, uh, historically. A historically first century Jewish argument. That in Abraham is contained the entire Hebrew nation, right? The whole people of Israel is in him. And by the way, by extension, so are we, by faith. But to go back to that original idea of the nation, the argument here is that in Abraham's uh, seed, so to speak, in his body, is contained the ancestry of Moses and of Aaron and of, the, of Levi and of the Levitical priesthood. And, and as you read these verses, don't let them, they might seem a bit 
convoluted and complicated. But the, the gist of it is simply this, that in Abraham's body is carried the priesthood of the old covenant. And through Abraham, that priesthood is now bowing down itself to the high priesthood of Melchizedek, who is a type of the high priest himself, Jesus Christ. Therefore, Christ's priesthood is superior. It is a better priesthood than the priesthood of Aaron and of Levi and of the Levitical sacrifices. That's the argument basically given here. And thus, several times is repeated this quotation applied to Jesus from Psalm 110, verse 4, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What it is, is it's God declaring uh, to Jesus in that great psalm that begins, remember, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I put thy enemies under thy feet. And he says, I have sworn and I shall not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What, what the author is telling us here is that, that in the very mind of God, in the heart of the Holy Trinity, is, is this great pact that Jesus was to be ordained forever as the high priest of all creation. And this Melchizedek was but for Abraham and his seed a sign to that reality. Jesus, then, is the final endorsement of the oath that God made, that Jesus' high priesthood is the better and final priesthood. Now, here again, when it uses the word better and superior, it is not, uh, the letter is not at all um, putting down or, or denigrating the Old Testament. On the contrary, it's, it's lifting it up, which is why we retain the, the Old Testament in our scriptures. Uh, there was an early heresy, I believe it was alluded here by uh, a previous speaker, uh, by a guy named Marcion who rejected the Old Testament on the grounds that that he thought it was inferior to the new. Well, that's not what we're talking about here. The new completes the old. So now we move on into chapter 8. And chapter 8 now is taking the transition of thought of Jesus' eternal priesthood and its superiority to the old uh, covenant to now his better covenant. He is now transitioning that Christ is a priest of a newer and superior covenant than that of the old. Chapter 8, making this transition, quotes uh, <clears throat> extensively from the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31, verses 31 to 34, where uh, he says, I will make a new covenant. I'll quote that to you from chapter 8, verse 8. The days are coming, surely, says the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they, will, uh, they did not continue in my covenant. And so I had no concern for them, says the Lord. This is the new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. And they shall not teach one another or say to another, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, 
from the least of them to the greatest. And taking that scripture, the author shows us that the new covenant, where God's law is now written on the hearts and not on tablets of stone, um, is the culmination of the new covenant that God established. Transitioning then into into chapter 9, this has all been made possible by Christ's perfect sacrifice because he entered the Holy of Holies. Now here is where Christ's perfect priesthood is now folded into Christ's perfect sacrifice, where the the sacrifice itself is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, where the sacrifice now is done once and for all, and where it is affirmed, as we just affirmed in worship, now merely a sacrifice of thanks and praise. For that one propitiatory sacrifice, that one sacrifice for the expiation of our sins and the satisfaction of God's wrath has already taken place in him. Okay. Jesus, therefore, enters into the Holy of Holies by his shed blood. The author goes into an extensive uh, recap of what happens in the temple sacrifice as a foreshadowing of what Christ did. He makes the point that, uh, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, chapter 9, verse 22. And that animal sacrifices and the sprinkling of blood were to be employed to purify the personnel and instruments of the temple. And, and this is why it was done continually in the past. The priests, the Levites, the altars, the incense, the incense burners, the bowls, the utensils, The animals and all of the the paraphernalia of the temple were to be purified by the sprinkling of blood in order to set them apart and make them holy, cleansed with the blood of bulls and goats. But Christ's sacrifice now has cleansed all the Old Testament rites forever and ever and has cleansed all of us. The author goes on then to, to conclude that the temple rites of the Old Testament were merely copies of the, um, <clears throat> of the true heavenly realities uh, which were now realized in Christ. That as the worshipers went for all those years, from the tabernacle to the various temples, as, as Jacob alluded to, that were built, destroyed, and rebuilt, and offered those sacrifices and saw the priests uh, offer the incense on the altars, what they were looking at was but, but a shadow of what was to come on a hill called Calvary, where there, once and for all, Christ was to take upon himself the sins of the world, and where all who were covered in his blood were to be declared clean, and where nothing was to ever be unclean in the sight of the Lord. So these things were, were figuration, prefigurations, types, or foreshadowings in the, of what was to come in Christ. The author now takes us even further into the significance of the blood in chapter 10. You wonder why uh, it's not surprising that to the early, uh, the early Roman um, pagans often thought of Christians as cannibals because we ate the body and drank the blood of our Savior. And that was one of the things they accused us of being. They also called us atheists, by the way. 
because we didn't believe in the, uh, in the Roman and Greek gods. Blood is significant, right? It's, it's in all the traditions of Christendom. And uh, you have, uh, you know, there's power, power, wonder-working power in the blood, as the old gospel hymn goes. And we speak of this not lightly because having established that Christ's priesthood is superior to the Levitical or Old Testament priesthood, and that his sacrifice sealed once for all the efficacy of all those sacrifices, the author reminds us that at the end of the day, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Chapter 10, verse 4. Without the shedding of blood, chapter 9, there is no forgiveness of sins. Yet, chapter 10, it is impossible... Excuse me, I'm still lingering. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats in and of themselves to take away sin. You think for a moment every primitive culture of humanity. Think of the, 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 the sense in, across cultures and time that, that something or someone had to die and, and shed blood in order to pay for something or appease the gods and this sort of thing. It's, it's sort of hardwired into, sort of into the human psyche. And what our author is telling us is that at the end of the day, those kinds of things have no efficacy. That is ultimately the blood of Christ shed on the cross that made the way open for all humanity who, should, who would come and place their trust in him to be saved. The sacrifice of Christ, therefore, uh, effected the forgiveness of sins that the temple rites could not. And it's, it makes a point that they had to be repeated year after year. The high priest on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, had to go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat and hope that he wasn't struck dead by the power of God. The discourse now takes a practical turn. This is very heady theoretical stuff. But he says, since we have confidence and since we have a great high priest, let us draw near to God with a true heart and in full assurance of faith. Chapter 10, verses 19 through 21. Let us draw near to God with a true heart and with full assurance of faith. Christ opened the barrier that lay between us and God so that we could now have access to the divine majesty as children, as daughters and sons, not as enemies. And based on this truth, the author now exhorts you and me to hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And, and there's that, that wonderful juxtaposition of our weakness and his strength. Uh, in studying this letter on numerous times, it has caused me to just get aside and just start praying. And just start praising. You, you can't read this letter without just getting away from theoretical stuff and getting down on your knees and knowing that as much as I want to run away, there's a chain attached to my ankle and it ain't going to let me go. 
in Pauline terms, I'm going to put this in terms of how St. Paul would have, would have put this. By the way, we know pretty much for certain Paul did not write this letter. Yet the theology meshes. What, what our author is saying meshes right here with how Paul would put this. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God and are now enabled to show forth that faith by good works, by faithful endurance. The theology is the same. It meshes. The author encourages us to meet together for the purpose of building up one another in love and encouraging one another to good works. Uh, my friends, there's a verse in here that is a favorite of preachers everywhere. Um, and they love to quote it. It's the one that says, uh, let us not forsake the assembling of one another. I don't know. Have you ever heard a, a minister ever tell you after you've missed church a couple of weeks? Let us not forsake the assembling of one another. Well, if they do, just remind them. Um, I know none of our clergy will do that. Okay, I'm confident. But if they do, just remind yourself that the context of this is not, you really ought to be at church every Sunday. The context is rather, don't miss out. Don't miss out on the blessings of being a community of Christ together. And that way expressing and encouraging one another in your faith. For I'm encouraged in my faith when I hear others who believe and hold to the like precious beliefs that I do too in our Savior. And so the exhortation is to meet together for the purpose of building one another up in love and encouraging one another in good works. The teaching here is, is clearly uh, the move from justification to sanctification in theological terms, from faith to fruit, from the foundation of God's grace towards the resulting community building and good works that flow from transformed lives. And that is always the order in which we hear it presented here in our parish, and I trust in many other places, that the good we do, the poor that we, we help and serve, the hungry that we feed, the, the the prisoners that we visit, and so forth, is done as a fruit and a result of a saving grace through faith in Christ. And that is what our author is taking us back to in this, in this teaching. And so we move on then to the chapter 11, which is a, if you want to say, a, and wow, this is just a commendation of what it is to have enduring faith. It's the famous faith chapter where it is defined in chapter 1, 11 verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence or conviction of things not seen. Never let anyone tell you or me that faith is a blind leap in the dark or that faith is some kind of a mindless embracing of things you can't prove. No, it's a conviction. It's a conviction that something, someone is true, even though you or I can't physically see him at this time. For I've experienced him. And you've experienced him. And we've heard his word, and we've actually taken him in, spiritually, by faith, in communion. And this 
I believe, is one of the foundational scriptures for the doctrine of the communion of the saints that we affirm towards the end of the creed. And because of this, we can run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, as it says in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. After we've read about, and remember he's addressing Hebrew Christians, where would he go? To all of the people they would be acquainted with from the scriptures, patriarchs, judges, kings, and martyrs, all those who have stood the test of faith, fallen and and flawed as they were, they endured because of faith. That we can then also add to that list We can add to that list all of those who have gone before us, who have followed Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, all of the saints that have gone before us, all of those godly people that we've personally known, those uh, family members, pastors, friends, uh, my dear pastor and his wife who have since gone to be with the Lord, continue to be a source of encouragement in imitating their faith. The imagery is that the author is using here is that of the arena, right? the ancient arena where the Olympic Games and other uh, sporting events occurred. And we are pictured as those running the race. And the audience and the crowd are those who have gone before wearing their crowns. And they are encouraging us as we run because ahead of us is the one who has run and won the prize, Jesus Christ. And, and it's that ancient imagery of the games that the author wants us to visualize ourselves in, in a race that by God's grace we cannot lose. So before us, we have our Lord who endured the cross, despising its shame and rising triumphantly and is seated at the right hand of God. The, right, the writer then turns to the discipline of the Lord. Just a small point here. The context here in, in, in chapter 12 about the discipline of the Lord is that the readers must not be discouraged by trials and temptations. The context is perhaps persecution, perhaps ridicule, perhaps doubts, and that in those struggles, we mustn't lose heart. The aim here isn't so much as to explain away the problem of pain, but rather to put pain and suffering in a larger context. You see, the author wants you and me to regard these trials as the disciplining of the Lord, as a father, a good father, would discipline his children. He isn't trying to give us a a kind of total picture of the problem of pain such that Everything that happens to us is necessarily run through the grid of God sort of deliberately punishing us. You see what I mean here? It isn't a total, the fancy word is theodicy or or justification of, of the ways of God in human suffering. It's rather a word of encouragement that within the context of persecution or doubt or, or, the, or the pressure cooker... Uh, that Jacob uh, reminded us that is life. Remember that within that is the fatherly hand 
to, to discipline us, to strengthen us, to encourage us, and to bring us out. Let me share with you a, uh, a posting of a, a friend of mine, literally a, the day before yesterday, a guy I went to uh, college with, he's been a Baptist minister now for uh, something like 40 years, and he just had a knee, knee replacement. We're about the same age. And the trouble is, I'm scared to death because I think I'm going to be heading down that road someday not to, in the not-too-distant future uh, every time I walk down the subway stairs. He had a knee replacement, and this is what he had to say about it on Facebook. Bill says, four days out from total knee replacement, I'm feeling blessed. Everything went very well. God is a gracious and loving father to his children through Christ. And still would be, even if things would have gone off the rails. And when I read that, I said, thank you, Bill, for sharing that. Because uh, rumor told me that knee replacements are one of the most painful things you can get. At least so I heard. And uh, just to hear those words was a, a tremendous encouragement and a reflection of what's being written here in Hebrews. God is a gracious and loving father to his children through Christ and still would be even if things would have gone off the rails. And believe me, stuff goes off the rails all the time for all of us in various ways. Thank you, Lord. But the conclusion of chapter 12 lands on a triumphant note that we have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the very presence, the free access to God by virtue of the blood of Christ with which God tore down the veil and brought heaven to earth, to us, through the spilled blood of Christ. And as the author concludes this letter... Chapter 13 is where it takes that sudden um, turn of literary genre. It becomes, instead of a treatise of theology and practice and a sermon, sounds like a letter. Reads like a conclusion of a Pauline letter, which maybe led some people to think that Paul wrote it. It even mentions Timothy. With uh, some 11 exhortations, I counted them. Eleven exhortations to love one another, practice hospitality, keep faithful in marriage, pray for your spiritual leaders among them. And then, after a formal benediction, Hebrews closes with a few personal remarks. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Cal St. G Academy. All of these podcasts are recorded at live events and lectures hosted by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. Want to hear more? Stop by the church sometime and attend one of these events live, or swing by one of our many services where we seek to rightly divide the word of truth week by week, with sermons that always point to where we end and God begins. Find out more about all of our events and offerings by visiting calvarystgeorges.org. And if these free podcasts have meant something to you, and you feel led to support our ministry, head on over to calvarystgeorges.org slash giving and make a donation today. Thanks again, and we hope to see you soon.